Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Agustin Fuentes. He's Professor of Anthropology at Princeton University. His research focuses on the biosocial, delving into the entanglement of biological systems with the social and cultural lives of humans, our ancestors, and a few of other animals with whom humanity shares close relations. Is the author of books like Race, Monogamy, and Other Lies They Told You, and Why We Believe, and he also has a chapter in a recent book, A Most Interesting Problem, What Darwin's Descent of Men Got Right and Wrong About Human Evolution, and those are going to be the main topics of our conversation today. So, Dr. Fuentes, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Ricardo, thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. You have a great show. Okay, thank you. So uh, let's start perhaps to contextualize things. Let me ask you first. Uh, so you're a biological anthropologist, right? Mm -hmm. So what does the discipline, what are so, uh, some of the questions that this discipline deals with? So I'm very interested in sort of the broader picture of humans from the context of evolution, biology, and culture. That is, how do humans as bodies, as beings, interact with one another, interact with the world, push against the world as it pushes against them? So I'm very interested in the traditional anthropological things of culture, of language, of ideas, of concepts and beliefs, but I'm particularly focused on how those interface with meld, shape, and are shaped by our neurobiologies, our physiologies, our, our physical sense. So, so I'm very interested in everything about the human, but I'm particularly interested in things biological about the human. Mm -hmm. And how do you look at the relationship between biology and culture in humans? Mm -hmm. Because that seems to be a very complicated question. It is an incredibly complicated question. And I think the problem is we tend to think of biology and culture as separate things, but for us, for all of life, but let's just keep with humans, it's not true, right? Um, our culture, our beliefs, our, our wishes, our desires, they're actually part of our bodies. They're embodied, they're physical components of us and our physical lives and selves are pushed out into the world, right? So, so I think biology and culture, we can talk about them differently, but really, they're part of the same process. And so that's, it's this process, right, of bioculture that's most interesting, most complicated, but really more fun to talk about. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when we're trying to understand human psychology, it's, uh, we can't really rigorously separate biology from culture. Right. No, because I mean, in, in understanding human psychology, sort of neuronal pathways, sort of our neuroendocrine structure is incredibly important so is our society, our language, our culture, the history of that culture, the economic and political structures in that culture, and an individual's sort of experiences as they grow up. So all of those things are part of it. We can focus on one or another, but if we think that we can truly separate those things, we're mistaken. Mm -hmm. And what about comparing ourselves to other animals? I mean, since you're a biological anthropologist, do you also do that? And to what extent do you think we should uh, perhaps uh, translate behavior we find in other animals to humans? Well, I think there are two questions there. One is, do we need the comparative approach, right? Okay. Um, humans are mammals, right? We're mammals, we're primates. Without comparison, other primates, other mammals, other kinds of organisms, we don't know what's distinctively human. So to understand the human, one must understand the complex social lives, behaviors, biologies of other organisms, right? So that's, I mean, we've known that. Darwin introduced that a long time ago, and he was right. 
To understand the human, we must understand other organisms. Now, the second part of the question is, can we look at another animal, see what they do and say, oh, that's why we're doing what we do? That's trickier. That's more complicated. There are broad common patterns, right, uh, that, that humans share with many other organisms, but then there are many, many distinct things. So something in another organism might look familiar, but might be very, very different in its underlying process and cause in humans. But are there any traits, and I'm focusing mostly on the psychological ones, that we can say are exclusively human? That's a very good question, right? And I would argue that there are particular patterns of human culture, not culture at large. Many other organisms have their own kinds of cultures, but there are patterns of human culture. And I would argue, as I've done recently, both in book and in text, that there's a particular mode of, of being that humans have called belief and a particular power of imagination and creativity that is distinctive for humans. I, I, I wouldn't say unique, because sometimes we just can't really access all of the details of other animals' minds, but I would say belief, creativity, and imagination are distinctive in the human. Mm -hmm. And what is belief? Could you define it? Because I know you have an entire book on it, so... Yeah, so I think it's whenever I talk about, oh, you know, why we believe the sort of evolution of belief, everyone immediately thinks I'm talking about religion. No, no, religion is one aspect of belief. Belief, right, is the human capacity to combine our experiences, the material world around us with our imagination and creativity and to share those sort of ideas and concepts and focus them on a person, an idea, a thing and sort of imagine that or even more to focus it on something that is not material, not tangible, not even here, but is here and to focus on it so incredibly and commit to it that it becomes our own reality. So belief is the ability to commit so wholly and fully to something that maybe you can't touch or feel with your hands that you have it as part of who you are. So you can see how that is in religion, but we can also see that how that is in economics, right? Um, you know, I, if I hold up a, a uh, you know, euro note, that euro note is, is only valid because we all buy in, we all believe in its power. Right. Uh, why do we have beliefs then? Uh, I mean, do they serve any specific functions, social functions, maybe? Well, I would argue that they serve both social and evolutionary functions, but that the capacity to believe, to fully commit to, to sort of the unmaterial, to ideas, to ideologies, to systems, to commit in these ways has enabled humans to do things that many other organisms can. So it's, it's a product of the human niche, of our way of being in the world, and it's facilitated a variety of things. Now, when we get into specific beliefs, then we can talk about, you know, uh, uh, positive and negative and all those kinds of things. But the capacity for belief, I believe, is a human adaptation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to understand beliefs, uh, perhaps we need to distinguish between uh, the questions of why we believe versus what we believe, correct? Absolutely. And I think that's a very important distinction. So I'm very interested in why and how, right? How does, do, does an individual human and how do human societies create and, and commit to beliefs? And what do those beliefs sort of, what do they do? How do we think about it, both neurobiologically and socially? what those beliefs are, that's a very different thing. That's archaeologists and theologians and philosophers and religious studies and anthropologists. I mean, you can really talk about the details of belief systems, um, but I'm more interested in the capacities. Like, how did we evolve this capacity and what do we use socially, culturally, cognitively to make belief happen? Mm -hmm. 
So you have a book on myths in human evolution and you talk about things like monogamy, race, sex differences, but in the context of evolution, what would you say is a myth? So when I use the term myths, right, and here I'm drawing heavily from like the philosopher Mary Midgley and others, when I say myth, it is a commonly held, very pervasive, almost belief, if you will, in a society that is not supported by our evolutionary histories of the biology, right? So here are the examples I give, let's say um, monogamy, that all humans are specifically adapted to an exclusive pair, you know, uh, uh, marriage or reproductive structure. I think there's good evidence that that's not the case. Um, race, the idea that humans are biologically divided into distinct lineages that we could call black, white, and Asian. That is not true biologically, but people commit to it and believe it. Um, and the final thing I dealt with is aggression, right? That at our core, we're these sort of Hobbesian beasts um, and that that's our adaptive zone. That also is not supported by evolutionary and biological data, yet all three of those things are absolutely believed and ascribed to. They are myths that maintain themselves in our society. Mm -hmm. So let's delve into some of those things and perhaps take into account what Darwin wrote in The Descent of Man because that's one of the focuses of our interview because of its 150th in 50th anniversary. So talking about race, uh, why is it that race is not a scientifically valid concept? So very clearly, that's a hypothesis. Are humans biologically divided into categories that can be defined as black, white, Asian, for, for example, or African, European, Asian, right? Are those biological categories? Is there some mode that we can create that biological distinction, morphologically, genetically, what have you, via biological characteristics? The answer is no. There is not a single biological pattern or characteristic that validates those constellations, right? Those classifications, black, white, Asian, African, European, uh, Asian. That is, biologically speaking, that's not the way humans are divided up. Now, this is not to say there's not huge variation in skin color, hair type, height, body shape, face structure among the human species, but that variation does not fall biologically into black, white, Asian. Mm -hmm. So how do you account for those kinds of genetic, anatomical, physiological, and eventually perhaps psychological differences? Well, I mean, what we're really talking about is the tens of thousands of human populations, of clusters, of groups, of large groups, of regional groups, of local groups. Um, and what we see is that in many cases for humans, the sort of whatever given genomic variation in a cluster, right, has to do with environmental patterns, relationships with other populations around it, um, sort of particular uh, socio-cultural practices of mating and food, health practices, concepts like that. So really, humans are fascinating because we are, as a species, not that genetically variable at all, but across populations, really interesting variable in different ways. And what causes that variation, that's a really interesting area of study. So I would argue, and if we look over the last two million years, one consistent pattern across human species, right, the human species, is a lot of variability. It's interesting to posit, and this is a hypothesis, we still have to sort of demonstrate it if it's, if it's accurate, to posit that in fact it is this diversity that has been very beneficial in our evolutionary success. Mm -hmm. So apart from race, do you think that there's any other concept that we could use to 
categorize people in a scientifically valid way? Because, I mean, since we evolved in different populations, for example, do you think that a term like population would be correct to use here? No, population, if used correctly, is a scientific term, but Africa is not a population, right? Europe is not a population. So if you can define a population, you need to define, is it a geographic population? Is it a genetic population, right? Is it a, a linguistic population? Is it a religious population? So you want to think about how you use that term. But of course, we can scientifically, not so much categorize, but sort of say, you know what I'm really interested in, let's say, skin color, right? And so we can look across the species and say, okay, well, how does skin color map? And work by Nina Jablonski and others has been really powerful showing us that there's this correlation between long-term exposure to areas near the equator, ultraviolet radiation, and processes and patterns of um, the uh, melanocyte and melanin distribution in skin that we can look at across the entire species to get patterns and processes of skin, really what it is is skin reflectance, right? But we call it skin color. So we can really categorize and understand skin color. It doesn't get us race, but it gets us knowledge. Um, so that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And specifically in the descent of men, did Darwin have anything to say about race, racial categories? Yes, he did. And that's very unfortunate in many ways, um, because there's some aspects of the descent of man that are so important that are with us today as these central parts of our understanding of human evolution. And there are other parts where Darwin made some horrible errors uh, because of his own upbringing and background and commitment. So in chapter seven uh, on the uh, in the descent of man, um, uh, where he talks about race, human races in specific, he does a very important move where he shows clearly that there's only one species of Homo sapiens, right? That, that these different categories uh, that people are using are all the same species, and that's absolutely critical. But unfortunately, and despite of the evidence that he actually had in front of him, he goes on to sort of rank the races and say, well, the Europeans are the sort of top rank, and then you've got sort of these indigenous Americans and these sort of Asians, and then you've got all Africans down at the bottom, and that there are cognitive deficiencies as you go down the scale, and he ranks all of these different things. So he makes a huge mistake because in the pages of Descent, he actually shows that they're probably the characteristics, skin color, hair type, things like that, that people are using to divide the races, that they're not based on natural selection and they're not probably not functional in the way people think they are. So he comes very close to disproving this sort of racist classification of humans, but because of his own biases and background, he ignores his own data and actually makes some pretty racist assertions about humanity. Mm -hmm. But do you think it was an issue of him ignoring the data he had available back then? Or, I mean, that it was really a scientific mistake or it was simply him being influenced by the culture of the time? It's both, right? And I think that's the important thing. So I recently wrote an editorial for Science that got a lot of people yelling at me because I pointed this out. I'm like, Darwin was great and we owe a lot to him, but he made some real mistakes and we need to teach and learn about them. So. Here's the point. Darwin actually had access through his own personal experience and through data that he had accumulated and looked at that, that, that he puts down in chapter seven there on Descent of Man, where you could say, wow, you know, this whole argument about races doesn't hold up. And yet he still at the end talks about mind differences and mental capacities and inferiority and ranks the races. And he also believes that natural selection predicts that ultimately Europeans would wipe out all other races. Uh, because of their more fit 
nature in the world. And he held those beliefs in spite of the evidence in front of him. So, so I would argue what you asked is the question is yes to both of those, right? Was, were there data available to refute this sort of racist perspective? Yes. Um, now, would most people see that? No, but Darwin wasn't most people. Darwin was probably one of the most brilliant scientific minds we've ever known. He was able, right, in, 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 by the 1850s, right, when he wrote On the Origin of Species, he was able to look at the world, to see the data, and to go against his society, his church, his peers, and say, no, everyone, you're wrong. Look, we can see descent with modification via natural selection here. Look, he was really amazing. But he couldn't do that when it came to humans. And that's because of the power of his society and his upbringing and the commitment to, to a racist world. But do you think that this is mostly a scientific issue or that it also has some ethical ramifications? No, no, I think it has large ethical ramifications because when we teach, for example, descent of man, which we should, it's such an important contribution to understanding human evolution. It set the stage for so much to follow. When we teach that book, when we talk about Darwin, if we ignore or don't mention the racist and sexist, <laughs> which we can get to as well, components of the book, then what happens to those students who are not white and not male? When they're reading the book and we say, this is the great genius, and yet they'll read again and again and again in this book statements about how they are less than, how they're not as human, how they're not as valuable, how they're cognitively deficient. Um, if we don't say, hey, you're reading that, Darwin was wrong there, and here's why Darwin would say that here, and why Darwin would say these other things here. Here's the complexity, here's the power of racism in society at that time, and how it played out, and how we should think about it today. So I think we do need to teach it. It's not just about sort of challenging the science or the erroneous science, it's the broader ethical and moral context for how do we talk about the past and the present, and how do we move forward to a better understanding of what humans do and why we do it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned sex. What did Darwin have to say about human sex differences and what were the sorts of things he got perhaps right and wrong? Well, I think really importantly and, and very innovatively, um, Darwin was very interested in sex differences in other animals to look at. And he's like, okay, we need to understand like what's going on with males and females. There's obviously they're different colors. There's all these different kinds of things. And, you know, he wrote that whole sort of second book, right? Selection in, in relation to sex uh, that's combined with descent there. Um, talking about these things. And it's very important for us to look at it because for many species, specific patterns of reproductive differentiation and behavioral differentiation are central parts of their niche. They're the way those species are in the world, right? But then when he turned to humans, he sort of like lost all of that sort of scientific assessment, even though he was a little biased with the other animals, but he lost his scientific assessment, just like with races. And he looked at humans and he says, well, women are great, but they're not as smart. They're not as courageous. They're not as inventive and they're not as creative as men. So men should lead, men should go to war, men should run societies, women should take care of the home, women should take care of babies and women should take care of men. And, and it's very interesting because in his own life, I mean, his wife, Emma, was very influential. He loved his daughters dearly. Um, and in fact, um, both his wife and especially his daughters, for example, Henrietta, was the main editor on his book, Descent. Darwin was writing her letters while she was vacationing in Europe, pleading with her to read his chapters and give him feedback. And yet he still couldn't see that women can have the intellectual capacity that men can, even though he relied on them for that same thing. So, so his bias was a Victorian sort of sexist worldview that he overlaid onto evolutionary processes. 
<laughs> but are some sex differences in humans biological or are they mostly cultural? Well, I mean, so here's the really difficult thing to talk about this in human society because we're, we have sex gender, right? You can't take apart, you can't take the human out of their culture, out of their history. You also can't take the human out of their biology. And so what we really need to do is to understand what are we talking about? So for example, if we're talking about reproductive processes, so reproductive biology and anatomy, there are critical differences in the human species between the sort of reproductive uh, trajectory and biology we're calling female and the one we're calling male. That's how mammals work. That's a center of being a mammal, right? <laughs> that there are these complementary, logically speaking, um, rather than being two separate things, right? They all come from the same thing, right? Males and females come from the same tissue masses and formations. And so the actual development and the range of possibilities along that male-female reproductive spectrum is really interesting, right? So what I would argue, and this is what I meant about the myth of sex, is that rather than thinking of males and females as two wholly different kinds of biological things, right? They're both members of the same species with patterned, structured differences in particular biological and physiological processes, but not in others. And so that's, that's a really important way to think of it. So is there, are there biological sex differences? Of course there are. Um, are they what we think they are? Not always. Mm -hmm. And why do you say they are not what we think they are? What do we usually think they are? Well, a good example is that most people think there are male brains and female brains, right? That, that if, you, if you pick up a brain, you're like, oh, this is a male brain, this is a female brain, right? Recent, uh, there's a number of neurobiologists working on this, but a great recent overview by Lise Elliott and colleagues, uh, which does a meta-analysis of all the sort of brain studies, uh, or a huge amount of brain studies that look at this, shows that rather than thinking of a dichotomy male and female brain, what we'd think about is a continuum of different kinds of brain facets, depending on what we're asking about. So let me give you an example. If I were to hold up two kidneys and I said, this is a male kidney, this is a female kidney, you'd look at me like I was crazy, right? I mean, because we know that the kidneys are kidneys, right? But if I hold up two brains, everyone assumes there's a male and female one. Why is that? That's because of a cultural myth about what being male and female means. Now, that doesn't say that there are not differences in development in brain function right? That's gender, that's culture, that's how we structure, or that there are not differences in adult reproducing organisms as to what's going on physiologically. But it does mean that there's not two different types of human. Mm -hmm. But uh, when it comes specifically to psychological differences or to gender, if we want to distinguish between sex and gender, uh, isn't it that we should expect that the same sort of uh, evolutionary mechanisms that operate and that lead to the differentiation in terms of anatomical features, for example, between male and female, would also lead to psychological differences biologically, sure. that are biologically based? Well, that depends on what we're talking about, right? So you just said the same sort of like pattern differences. So if we're talking about reproductive tracts, so of course, so if we're, we're saying that there's something that is physiologically or neurobiologically connected to, let's say, the where testosterone or estrogen are produced and distributed through the body, right? Which is all humans have plenty of testosterone and estrogen, but it varies dramatically, right? Depending on your reproductive anatomy and a variety of other things, what's going on. So do you see how complicated this question is? What are we actually asking? So are we saying there are male and female psychologies? 
by definition, in a society where we have such deep sex gender role differentiation, you're going to get psychological differences. Are those one-to-one -one correlations with hormone levels or particular neurobiological structures? No. Are there patterned connections between neurobiology and physiology and hormones? Yes. So really, it, 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 you have to ask, what, what question are we asking and why are we asking it? Um, I, so I think, as you can see, this is a really complicated area and everyone wants to make it simple. Everyone wants to say there are no sex differences or there are only sex differences. And both of those extremes are wholly incorrect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just considering that particularly in the context of the descent of men and since Darwin talked a lot about sexual selection there, that maybe that sort of mechanism would have been one of the reasons why uh, or, or that it produced also sex differences on the level of psychology. Well, I mean, obviously, theoretically, that's possible. That's a hypothesis that one can test. So you can ask, like, in, in what particular sex differences. Now, one of the problems with Darwin's proposal for sexual selection, right, or, or natural selection in, in the context of, of, of sexual competition, um, one of the problems is he has a very gross, very, very broad scale um, approach to that. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, well, fortunately, over the last 150 years, we've been able to refine sexual selection. We've been able to refine um, sort of what other organisms do and how those patterns happen. Um, and so to take Darwin's sort of very gross generalized uh, mode and apply it to humans is really incorrect, right? We don't apply it to most other organisms now. So we might want to ask much more specific questions. Um, and we have to be very careful with that when it comes to humans as to what exact question we're asking. So for example, um, Darwin would argue, as have many for the last 150 years and today, that female psychology is affected by a selection for caregiving, right? For motherhood, right? That that females are more caregiving, they're more socially oriented, they're more open. You've, this is a common argument. Now there's a problem. There's extremely good evidence that humans, male and female, the entire range, are physiologically and psychoneuroendocrinologically adapted to extreme caregiving of offspring, of infants, and of other individuals. And so, and Sarah Hardy and many others have demonstrated this very clearly. Lee Gettler's done great work on, on male parenting. Um, so what we see is that humans anatomically and physiologically have adaptations for caregiving, right, as a species. And yet we're only asking questions about female caregiving, right? Even though we know that females are not the only or sometimes not even the primary or exclusive caregivers uh, to infants or to other individuals. And so the broader question would be, okay, in a given society, in a given context, what are we really asking about? What specific behaviors can we make a sexual selection or an evolutionary argument? Or are there other ways to understand what's going on? And the comparative approach, what Darwin pioneered, is central. If we're going to ask questions, we better ask questions first at the species level, then to specific genders, sexes, or ages, or, or contexts like that. Do you see why that, that becomes important? Yeah. So apart from race and sex, uh, what are some of the other things that Darwin, Darwin mentioned about humans and human biology that perhaps he got wrong uh, 50, 150 years ago? I, you know, I, I'm going to say that aside from the race and sex thing, which are the things that he was really biased about, that his beliefs inhibited his ability to look at data and to sort of theorize as effectively as he did with other things. 
I would say that in Descent and in a lot of other his writings, but particularly in Descent, he got a lot of things right. Um, I think the idea of morals and ethics, the idea of creativity and of sort of cooperation, a lot of people don't give Darwin enough credit for his real commitment to this idea that cooperation and in social groups is central to understanding evolutionary success. And he saw that in humans. He also, I think, saw really fascinatingly this sort of roots of sort of some human moral and ethical behaviors in other organisms. And he saw that humans have spent a lot of you know, psychological and maybe even evolutionary commitment to developing these complex ethical and moral systems. So I think he was really attuned to that. And yet he couldn't see in himself that how that was playing out with his look at the at the data on race and sex. So he, he got a lot of things right and a few important things wrong. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, in general, would you say that the descent of men got uh, more things right or wrong about humans? I mean, it depends on which things you're asking. Did he get things about race and sex right? Well, he argued that all humans are one species. That's a very important first step, right? Uh, but pretty much everything else he said about race and a lot of what he said about human sex uh, is wrong. However, he did say, look, if we're really interested in human evolution, we should look to Africa, which he got right. He did say that social cooperation and sort of um, the role of emotions and ethics are, and morals are really important to understanding evolution. And he's absolutely right on that. And this whole idea that culture, that this sort of cumulative or ratcheting culture is central to understanding human evolution is absolutely right. And, and I'm going to go back to the beginning because I think the most important thing he said to us was, look, to understand humans, we need to understand us as part of everything that's alive on the planet. So to understand humans, we must understand other organisms. And what's really important, and there's some great little passages in there about monkeys and the different kinds of organisms. What, what Darwin did show everyone is not only how important it is to learn about us by studying other organisms, but how important other organisms are. How complex, how amazing. I mean, come on, he spent, I think, six years doing a three-volume series on what barnacles and barnacle fossils. <laughs> That's That's devotion, right? Uh, and, and, and his love for the world uh, teaches us, I think, the importance of study. So when people always ask me, you know, why is it important to study other animals like flowers or plants or, or you know, bugs? It's because through understanding the world, we understand ourselves better, but we also are a little bit more humble in knowing that we're part of this amazing panoply of life. Mm -hmm. uh, did he also say anything about group selection back then, because I, particularly when applied in the context of culture, perhaps it would be relevant to understand certain aspects of our evolutionary history. So I would argue, and I'm sure some would or many would disagree with me, that, that Darwin, in, in contemporary terms of group selection, that Darwin was a group selectionist. I mean, I, I think he believed very strongly that competition between groups um, particularly with humans, was a central feature of human evolution and patterns. And I think in, in, in a number of different places, he lays out, you know, fairly cogent arguments for why this would be the case. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I, I think Darwin was a group selectionist. And, I, you know, evolutionary theory is so important. Right now it's in a sort of golden age. There's so much going on. It's, it's fascinating. But the whole argument for whether evolution is most best, is best modeled at the genic level, at the individual level, at the population level, at the group level, I mean, those are silly arguments because you can make cases 
in different contexts for different targets or units or levels of selection. Um, I think that's pretty evident by now. So, so yeah, I, I would argue Darwin was a group selectionist, and, and I think he was right about that. Mm -hmm. So talking about some of the myths you explore in your books, uh, to get a little bit more deeper into monogamy, why would you say, I, I mean, what are the sorts of evidence you would uh, put on the table to say that monogamy is not really the preferred mating system in humans? Well, I mean, there's a couple different kinds of, of evidence. Now, let's back up, though, because most people, when they say monogamy, are not actually talking about a mating system. They're talking about a cultural system of belief, okay. right? Uh, sort of this idea that two individuals fall in love and have this incredible sense and commitment and are exclusive to one another. Um, so that's that's what most people say. But even as a mating system, that is, monogamy is defined generally as exclusive mating between a pair, right, across one mating season or more, right? And humans don't have mating seasons, so let's just say for an extended period of time. Um, the, the, this is actually quite common in humans, that humans have strong pair bonds. That is, they have very strong social and physiological attachment to other individuals, which may or may not have sexual components to it, right? Uh, there's a sexual pair bond and then there's a broader social pair bond. Um, but having a strong social pair bond or sexual pair bond even, and a strong mating relationship with an individual doesn't mean that, that both of the individuals in that pair don't also have strong sexual attraction to others, right? And so the idea that there's something magical about monogamy or some sort of, you know, adaptive cone that falls over the pair and cuts them off from all other physiological and behavioral contexts, that's just false, right? I mean, and, and what kinds of data? Well, what humans actually do, right? Humans, uh, even those in what legal or culturally sanctioned monogamous relationships are rarely wholly monogamous, particularly across the lifespan. What it does look like, though, is that humans are either, um, humans do form very strong pair bonds, and humans are frequently serially monogamous. Um, but, but on average, humans um, experience psychological and physiological attraction to many individuals across their life. Mm -hmm. But being serially monogamous, is it not the same thing as being monogamous? Well, but serial monogamy frequently involves um, very complex cultural, psychological, sort of structural experiential realities, right? So what I'm saying is that humans pair bond, but pair bonds don't necessarily equal monogamy. So I would say that humans have, and there's good evidence to suggest this, both um, in, in modeling human evolution in contemporary societies and in physiological and, and endocrine research, that humans form incredibly strong pair bonds, more than one frequently across their life, um, that that's a central part of being human. But whether or not that maps to sort of the cultural idea or the mating expectations of monogamy, that's much more variable. So that humans as a monogamous species, that doesn't really hold. Humans as a pair bonding species does. And the distinction is, is minor, but it's actually important. Mm -hmm. And how do you account for the evolution of emotions like envy? Or do you think that's some sort of cultural artifact? No, I think jealousy and envy are clearly critical emotions in humans, and they're not only associated with sex. They're not only they're associated with all sorts of bonds and connections. It's interesting that we focus so much on the sex part of envy and jealousy, 
But really the vast majority of anger, of envy, of jealousy is associated with friendships, with material possessions, with a variety of other things. So it's not surprising that humans have evolved this incredibly rich emotional psychological repertoire, right? We're such social complex organisms. Um, and the fact that it, it manifests in these sort of sexual relations, that's important, but we can't lose sight of the fact that these same emotions actually are much more common outside of sexual relations. Uh, so the idea that sexual jealousy is totally different from other kinds of jealousy or envy, I would, I would argue that's not the case. Now, sorry, I'm going on at length here. What is important though is in different cultures, we have very, very different expectations and mores and norms about sexual relations, about jealousy, about envy, about appropriate behavior, about gender. And so that all always is shaping the physiology and the psychology that happens. So, so one can expect really different outcomes. Um, and in some societies, for example, up until recently, for example, there was very, very openness sexually until marriage, right? So that so these kinds of je jealousy and envy show up in different ways. But then as an adult, right, once you're officially, you know, culturally sanctioned to be with someone or someone's, depending on the system, um, you have to totally shift your psychological and behavioral positioning. And so then the envy and the jealousy takes on a different role. Does, does that make sense to sort of those complexities? Mm -hmm. And what about the fact that it seems that more than 80% of studied societies have uh, polygyny and not, for example, polyandry? Does that tell us anything in terms of the kinds of sexual romantic relationships you men establish? Yeah, I mean, that number is fascinating because it's both from the Murdoch, uh, famous Murdoch studies, and then also the HRAF files. And so what, what we really know is that when you look on a general level and you say, does a society have poly polygamy, that is one male and multi multiple females in a marriage system, um, uh, more societies, the vast majority of societies are polygamous, that is culturally that's allowable. But even in those polygamous societies, the vast majority of people only have one wife. Um, it is it is rare that, you know, so that that's actually really interesting. So putting that aside, it is very interesting that polygamy as a cultural expectation or a, a possibility is more common than polyandry, um, which is one uh, wife and multiple husbands, which does occur in a number of different contexts. Um, so what what does that mean? Um, well, part of that, I think, has to do very much with the emergence over the last 10 to 12,000 years of particular types of human societies, of particular economies, of particular politics and particular structures. Um, and so we know that there's very interesting correlations between the mode of agriculture, the mode of economic infrastructure, the political and social structures, and perspectives on sex, gender, marriage, uh, uh, freedom, ownership, property. All of those things are part of the story. So I think there's a number of very interesting histories that have gotten us where we are today. Now, most importantly, we can look at the world today in the last couple hundred years and say, well, that's what it looks like now. But that is not necessarily a good indicator of what it looked like 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago. And it's definitely not an indicator of what it looked like 30,000 years ago. So when we're talking about human evolution and processes and patterns, we have to be careful not to take contemporary diversity and say that's what it has always looked like. Okay, so that means that, for example, when we're studying contemporary intergatherer societies, we have to be careful when when thinking that maybe they represent ancestral and togetherer societies. So what's really amazing about contemporary, and I, rather than the term hunter-gatherer, I would say small-scale societies, 
um, is that people have long thought, oh, well, that's how humans lived forever. These people are more primitive, which is a horrible term, but, but they reflect right, sort of more of the ancestral patterns. Um, I think there's great evidence uh, emerging recently that counters that. I think uh, um, uh, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, Bird and uh, Blige Bird and colleagues recently published this fantastic article showing that many small-scale societies actually have these huge social systems, right, that is not just about the small groups, or even just the local populations or regions, but they're connected across time and space with these. So I think what we have to remember is that all humans living today are equally evolved and that all are exhibiting contemporary social and ecological adaptations and systems. So I think, yes, there's some issues, some things about small scale societies that give us insight to, to human ancestry and, and, and patterns of the deep past, but there are also many issues about contemporary urban or mega societies that give us insight to the deep past and many things that don't. So yeah, I, I agree with your statement. We have to be very careful and very cautious about looking at small-scale societies today and assuming they tell us what we were like in the past. Yeah, and not only that, but probably also the fact that, I mean, it's very rare that we nowadays found even one of these more traditional societies that have not been exposed in any way, shape, or form to more modern industrialized societies, for example. Yeah, and, and what's really interesting is that there's better evidence now. We know of some of these uh, forager or small-scale societies that a couple centuries ago were quite integrated into these large economic systems and decided, you know what, I'm done. I want to go over here and sort of, so so we've got these deep histories of back and forth and exchange and some of the genomic material suggests that as well. So yeah, I think that's very interesting. And also there's this really fascinating, I think, emerging, especially from a lot of cultural evolution and economic theory studies, showing how just even connecting to contemporary capitalism or global markets shifts all sorts of things in perception and psychology. So, you know, it's very hard to look at a human today, anywhere on the planet, any human, and say that human is a good model for, or a better model for the human past than some other human. I think that's dangerous. I think we have to be very careful. Mm -hmm. So when trying to understand uh, how human, how ancient human societies organized and were structured, and how people interacted and established relationships back then. What would you say are some of the best sources? Uh, archaeology, for example. So, cultural anthropology, cultural evolution theory, archaeology, paleoanthropology, and ethnography. Right all of those things together because they all have pieces and patterns. So we're looking at contemporary humans. Human evolution is a process. It's an ongoing process. And so we're in midstream, right? We're still evolving. Everything is still going on. And so what we're trying to do is like, we're, we're watching a river, right? Run past us. We're looking at one spot in the river like, okay, well, this spot is related to that spot, but it just went down that way. And so it's, it's very difficult, but it's very exciting because there are patterns and processes, right? In the contemporary moment, that really indicate historical and deep time patterns and processes and others that don't. And so trying to pick those apart, I think is very difficult. My, my fear is that a lot of people tend to look at the contemporary moment as sort of the end point of human evolution. Um, and that's not the case, right? We're in the middle, right? We're, we're only two and a half million years old, maybe as a lineage, so or 2.8 million, depending on which fossils you want to call early homo. Um, we're, we're still going. There's a long way to go. Uh, and, and we need to be a little bit more humble about our ability to totally reconstruct the past. We can build parts of it, but we can't know it all.
Mm -hmm. uh, by, by the way, just before I ask you about my last topic, uh, what do you think about the discipline of evolutionary psychology? Since we're talking about these problems with trying to study contemporary hunter-gatherers and comparing it to ancient societies and also all of these issues regarding culture, for example, and perhaps we could apply it specifically to studying sex differences. Wh yeah. What do you think about the assumptions that are made in that discipline? Well, let me first say that the concept, evolutionary psychology, that is to look at contemporary human psyche and behavior, psychological processes and patterns, and to try to think about the patterns and processes, the trajectories that have produced the capacities that we're seeing or the actual behaviors that we're seeing today. That's really important. I love that concept. That's sort of what I do. I'm very interested in that. But much of contemporary evolutionary psychology, and, and, and I know some of my colleagues will yell at me for this, much of contemporary evolutionary psychology is very simplistic and sloppy science doing sort of that rough general work that Darwin did 150 years ago without including all of the complexity, the messiness, and the detail, the fine tuning that has happened in the past 150 years. So, um, well, to, to be fair, many evolutionary psychologists are using a lot of evolutionary theory at the level of the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, not of today. Um, so I would critique a lot of those simplistic assumptions and these ideas about, you know, male, female, you know, just many of those broad assertions. But the concept of evolution psychology is important, and I encourage people to think along those lines. I mean, one reason to study our past is to understand our present. Right. And so I think that's important. And, and I would argue in evolutionary anthropology, which is what I try to do, is to sort of think maybe in a more refined, maybe a little bit more slowly. And, and, and in a more detailed manner about the messiness of the human and being ready to accept complexity as patterns and processes and not always trying to fall back to explain contemporary psychology and contemporary behavior in simplistic selective terms. I think that's that's one of the faults of contemporary evolutionary psychology, but it holds great promise and I think the future will be much better. Mm -hmm. But do you think that the assumption that the psychology that humans exhibit today is more or less the same as we would have had during our evolutionary history and 10,000 years, 30,000 years ago, uh, do you think that that's a good assumption? Because, for example, they use the concept of the environment of evolutionary adaptedness. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I've talked even with prominent biologists like Robert Rivers, and that's one of the things that gets criticized the most. Yeah, no, I mean, the evolutionary sort of environment of evolution adaptiveness is wrong. That, that concept is an anti-evolutionary concept. Humans' minds didn't freeze 50,000 years ago or 200,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago. The environment of evolution adaptiveness is right here. We are evolving, and thus we are working to adapt in, to the challenges and context. So there are certain things, right, that sort of over time become prominent cognitive or neurobiological pathways or physiological pathways or morphological structures that have been maintained or refined or made less refined over time, right? That's true. But the idea that we're sort of adapted to a particular mode of being, foraging, you know, as of 50,000 years ago or something, that's just silly, right? We know that really probably the most important human uh, adaptive zone, right, is plasticity, diversity, and social flexibility, right? So the neuroplasticity in the brain, the brain is not just not built into modules, right? That neuroplasticity is extremely important, social development, 
cooperative, collaborative, and creative engagements. So the idea that we fixed on a sort of adaptive mind in the past and are still using that today, that's just too simplistic to be true. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, going back to gender differences, and because in one of your books you talk about aggression, for example, yeah. uh, what would you have to say about that? And do you think that that's uh, a good uh, illustrative example of how people think about uh, sex differences? Yeah, absolutely. So people think men are aggressive and women are passive, or women are caring, men are aggressive. Um, so what I always say, and this is what I tell my students, and I tell myself every time, okay, let's look at the data. What do the data say? So if you're, first of all, aggression is a giant catch-all category. It's sort of meaningless or like the term aggression and violence, what are we even talking about, right? So people who study aggression in other organisms have 16, 20 different categories of aggression, different patterns of aggression. So, So let's put that on the table and just say, okay, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about anger? right, levels of anger. Well, it turns out that across most societies that have been studied, male and females uh, overlap in the actual overall uh, expression of anger. Well, maybe we're talking about physical violence, right? Physical violence, fighting with, you know, material with your hands, hitting. Um, So there's actually not as many studies uh, as you would like to compare this, but when we do compare it, what we find is that in heterosexual couples, um, actually females are slightly more likely to exhibit mild physical aggression. Males, however, are more likely to exhibit injurious physical aggression. That is physical aggression that results in in actual injury. Um, And then if you look across at societal levels, um, after about seven to nine years of age, we see that males tend to engage in more physical aggression than females in the injurious sense at at a sort of a higher level. Um, But overall, physical aggression is about the same. So that's very interesting. So that tells us a couple different things. One is that something is happening around those teenage years that seems to be mediating or reducing female physical aggression and increasing male, or not increasing, but keeping male physical aggression at a particular level. So that's interesting. Is that hormones? Turns out it's not associated with that testosterone burst uh, that males undergo. So something else is going on. Um, And then into adulthood, and then we get the complexity of gender norms, cultural ideas, who can be aggressive, who can not be aggressive. The bottom line, and I'm sorry I'm talking too long on this, but the bottom line is that there are pattern differences in some aspects of aggression between the sort of categories, male and female and humans. But those patterns are not all consistent. Some are actually quite complicated and counter to what people think, and others fit with some of these societal expectations and norms. Why? what's going on. That requires a lot more research. And and there's a lot of good work out there. The basic statement that men are more violent than women, that doesn't hold true. But what does hold true is, for example, more mass murderers are male than female. More individuals who commit homicide are male than female. More individuals who commit violent physical assault are male than female. Why is that the case? There's not one simple answer, but there are a lot of complicated answers that are always biocultural, not just biological, and not just cultural. Mm-hmm. So is there, can we say that there's a human nature? Is the concept of human nature useful scientifically or even useful to think about human behavior and psychology? So yeah, I don't know whether you know or not, but I've actually done a lot of work on that and have a few books on that. And my favorite book uh, that I did uh, with a colleague, Aku Visala, 
uh, uh, um, who's just an amazing philosopher, theologian, and scholar, um, uh, we went around and we talked with prominent biologists, anthropologists, psychologists, philosophers, and theologians. Um, and it's called the book is called Conversations on Human Nature, and we asked them what you just asked me, and, and a series of questions along those things, just to see well, what are these people who actually do all this work across these disciplines? What do they think? And the diversity in responses was huge. It was just hilarious. All of them had a strong reaction to the question, some positive, some negative, some neutral, but everyone had a big idea, a concept about it. And I think that's very important. So in this book, uh, Conversations on Human Nature, what we do is we, we edited and reprinted just their conversations. It's, it's really a fascinating insight into how people think about it. But myself, I actually like the term human natures with an S at the end. Because I would argue there are many successful ways to be human. I think the data support that. Um, and that to try to narrow it down to one specific thing that all humans do is not the right question. The question is, what is the range? What are the parameters of things that humans do over time and in the present? And how do we track those? How do we understand those? So I think more of human natures as these capacities and categories, not as the specific outcomes. Mm -hmm. So just one last question, just before we go, would you like to leave a final message about the importance you think Darwin had to understanding evolution in general and evolution uh, and human evolution more specifically? Yeah, I think the most important thing for me are, are three things from Darwin. The first is um, uh, captured in that lovely final paragraph, right, on the origin of species, the tangled bank metaphor, right? This incredible just awe of life, of the world. I mean, the one thing that we need to respect and learn from Darwin is that the world matters and examining the world, just sitting and watching the world shows us so much about what it means to be human, but also what it means to be an animal and part of the world. And, and I think Darwin does that. And his letters to folks and his sort of musings are just wonderful in that way. Right. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the comparative approach. Right. Which comes from that first thing. Like you cannot understand humans. What makes us distinctive, what makes us really interesting just by studying humans. Right. You have to study humans in the context of the rest of life on the on the planet. And the final thing is what everyone's yelling at me lately for. And it's my critique of Darwin. It's that Darwin, this genius scientist, held racist and sexist beliefs. And he the, the power of that social upbringing the power of those beliefs blinded him to the data right in front of him. And so we can learn from Darwin that even the most brilliant scholar, even the most genius individual can be blinded by the power of racism and sexism. And so being aware of that and understanding that helps us be better scientists and I would argue helps us be better people. All of those three things are equally important. Okay, great. So, Dr. Fuentes, I will be leaving links in the description box to your books. Would you like to mention where can people find you on the internet? Yes, uh, you can uh, email me at afuentes2 at princeton.edu. I, I love to hear from folks. Don't scream and yell and say bad words. But other than that, I do like to hear from you. Um, and please follow me on Twitter at uh, anthrofuentes. Those are the best places to find me. Um, and I'm all over Google as well. Okay, so it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Ricardo. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Ricardo. 
Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing the channel for more than three years now and it is thanks to people like you that it's been running for so long and so if you like what I'm doing, please pay a visit to my Patreon page or to PayPal, all of the links are in the description box of the interview and to consider making a pledge there, support the show and otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share, share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enric Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Aynes, Sam, uh, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Alan or uh, Al Orwitz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidi, Simon Afzal, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Adriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardos France, and Niroban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.